Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to Monday, September 16th. And thanks so much for tuning in to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Radio NL. On today's program, I'm going to be talking with a man who organized a, a meeting in Clearwater last week over the TNRD enforcing a number of rules around temporary homes. Uh, They're starting to crack down and issue eviction notices to several people. And uh, the community got together to address some concerns and discuss what was going on. So we'll be talking more about what happened at that meeting and sort of what's happened since that Wednesday night meeting. I'll also be talking about uh, mortgage issues and as particularly as it relates to the speculation tax here in BC that uh, has come into effect earlier this year and the, uh, B- the BC government has been touting that it made $115 million off that tax but uh, there are a number of other organizations who are having a different tune when it comes to how positive that tax has been. But to begin today's show I'm joined by my usual Monday guest, Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, thanks so much for being here. Good morning, thank you for having me back. So last week it was revealed that RCMP Director of General of the Intelligence Unit, Cameron Ortis, was arrested in Ottawa under the Secrets Act for alleged espionage by foreign powers. Uh, so the RCMP alleged that Ortis allegedly had stolen large quantities of information which could compromise an untold number of investigations. The RCMP have charged him with five violations of the Security of Information Act and the Criminal Code, most relating to unauthorized leakage of prohibited information, unauthorized use of a computer, and break of trust. Uh, just on a side note, Ortis also apparently speaks Mandarin and apparently had some connection with East Asia, so that's just sort of one speculation of where these secrets potentially could have been heading. So, Kyla, just to start here, I guess with these types of charges being incredibly rare, um, just first and foremost, how surprising is it to see these kinds of charges laid in, in what is clearly an incredibly serious situation here? It's very surprising to see these charges laid in this type of situation, particularly with somebody occupying a role as significant um, as Mr. Ortiz occupied. I mean, we're not talking about just a low-level intelligence analyst. We're talking about somebody who had access to some of the most sensitive information that we have in Canadian secret uh, information databases. Now, he is facing up to 33 years in prison, I believe, and and the court process is is set to get underway later this month, but I am going to assume that this is going to take probably several years to navigate through the system. Is that, uh, you know, probably accurate, do you think, from your, your point of view? Oh, absolutely. It's not just going to take several years because of likely the amount of information that's going to be necessary to prepare the case against him, but there's also going to need to be all sorts of different applications because of the um, high level of secrecy associated with uh, the the information and the investigation and all of the surrounding circumstances. The public isn't going to be invited into a lot of the hearings on the prosecutions of these matters. There's going to be in-camera hearings where the public's excluded. There are going to be rulings that are made on the basis of information that's only made available um, to the judge or even sometimes not uh, necessarily made available to the judge. And that's going to delay the process significantly. Another thing that we're likely to see in this case is some challenges coming to the the Security of Information Act as a result of the, the fact that it's so rarely used. A lot of the provisions have never been challenged or tested in court. And I expect that this might be a good case for testing the constitutional validity of some of those provisions. Yeah, and I was going to sort of touch on that as well, just the fact that there isn't a whole lot of history when it comes to these kinds of charges. Uh, There were similar charges, I guess, laid against uh, Jeffrey Delisle. He was convicted for passing sensitive information from the top secret intelligence to a Russian spy agency. Uh, I believe that was in 2007. He apparently sold the information.
information for a mere ten thousand dollars U.S. Uh, and in 2012, he did plead guilty to breach of trust and two counts of passing uh, intelligence that had an end date, like it was related to a specific mission or something along those lines. Whereas this intelligence with Ortiz, uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem to have any kind of expiry. This is more about how information is collected, so it uh, definitely has more of a wide-reaching consequences. Um, I guess just looking at all of that with the fact that you know it's not necessarily similar, although it is somewhat. I guess uh, what kind of precedent do we have here? I mean, you were talking about how you know this is an opportunity to sort of test some things out. Um, I guess you know, given the fact that this is pretty unique, um, does that make it more challenging that there isn't really a historical record to go on for for this case? Oh, absolutely. Um, and the you know the last case in 2012 that dealt with these types of charges was vastly different in the sense that the evidence was was sort of readily available. I mean, the, the, that case involved somebody who literally just walked into uh, the, the Russian embassy and offered to sell secrets. Whereas, you know, in this case, we have a much more significant, thorough investigation that led to the discovery of all of this, the details of which we don't even know. We also don't have any information about this uh, at this point about any possible motive that the Crown theorizes, you know, motivated this conduct. And that, that's going to be a big question as well, because one of the charges specifically that Mr. Ortiz is facing has to do with preparing to commit an offense. Um, and not only is it unheard of to really charge people with preparation to commit an offense on their own outside of the ambit of a conspiracy, but also it's, it's so um, lacking in any motivation that it really it's questionable how you can uh, establish that somebody was collecting information or collecting um, mechanical information to um, to achieve the, the goal of, of obtaining information without actually desiring to commit an offense and how you prove that their goal in, in obtaining all of that uh, that data and that, uh, that technology was to uh, to commit an offense as opposed to carry out his employment duties and that's going to be big question uh, I think that we see in this case. Yeah, so just following that up then, just as it relates to talking about preparation, obviously, if someone is preparing to commit this kind of offense, that is something that, uh, you know, authorities would want to uh, get ahead of and make sure, you know, the, that secrets aren't leaked. So from that perspective, I guess, um, you know, the, the correct actions were taken if that were the case, especially if these secrets had not yet been leaked, although we have no idea if that was the case or not. Um, I guess so you're just saying it's really, really difficult to prove that someone uh, was potentially uh, trying or planning to do something without having the evidence that they actually did it and that sort of is going to have like a, a almost another wrinkle here in this whole situation yeah or without evidence of what their purpose was in doing it you know when you have charges you know the closest thing that we ordinarily see to this is charges for conspiracy where you have two or more people who plan together to commit an unlawful act and take steps in furtherance of that unlawful act but here you have just one person allegedly doing this on their own um and uh, whether the Crown is able to establish that there was an unlawful purpose behind all of the actions that were taken, um, or allegedly taken in this case, that's something that has really never been tested before. And we're going to see sort of the limits of how the Crown can establish what somebody is, is planning to do in their own mind um, within the context of these Security of Information Act charges. So it's going to be really interesting from a legal perspective. 
Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting just from a public perspective as well, given that, uh, you know, these are very unique charges in a very, very, very serious situation. Uh, it's going to obviously take a long time to play out, but it's definitely something um, I'll be keeping my eye on for sure. Uh, here with Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. So, well, we have a few more minutes here. I'll, I'll change the subject a little bit. I did want to ask a couple of questions related to uh, an article you had written last week um, related to uh, menstrual products. It's a kind of a weird transition maybe, but uh, you wrote a piece applauding the province for making it mandatory for these to be available for free in all public schools in BC, uh, but now you believe the same should be true for BC courthouses. I guess, can you just sort of talk about why this is something that you feel strongly about? Well, courthouses are public spaces, and they're spaces where members of the public are compelled to attend. If you're charged with a criminal offense, you have to show up to court. If you don't show up to court, there's going to be a warrant for your arrest, and you can't just phone in and say, I can't come into court today, I have my period, and I can't afford to buy any menstrual products. So for women who are menstruating, who are in poverty or who don't have access to menstrual products, they have to face a choice. You know, do I come to court? Do I, you know, do I experience all of this in court without access to, to what I need to handle having my period? Or do I skip court, risk getting a warrant, and then deal with it later? And women shouldn't have to make that choice. Um, and, and we know, too, that courthouses and people facing criminal charges, by and large, um, the vast majority of people that are coming to court are people who are already there because their poverty is bringing them to court. You know, people who are, are experiencing poverty face higher rates of criminal charges, higher rates of criminal conviction than people who are not. And so the very types of people that are coming to court and accessing court services are the same people that are the most disadvantaged in their ability to obtain menstrual products. And I think the government should provide an avenue for women to address this issue with comfort and be able to come to court. Have you personally seen or experienced or, or sort of been around a situation where that actually has been an issue and, and sort of what the potential impact could be on a person's life moving forward just by missing that one court date, as you had mentioned? I mean, uh, th this obviously could have some very serious ripple effects as well. Uh, just, you know, missing one date and then and then where do things go from there? Have you have you personally seen any scenario where this has been a case? I'm assuming you have or, or this maybe wouldn't be quite as close to home for you. I haven't personally seen it um, because when I represent clients, my clients um, don't have to attend court. I appear on their behalf. Um, so it's, you know, they're alleviated right. of that responsibility. But, um, you know, it's not just women who are uh, compelled to come to court and there's this ripple effect that then you get a warrant, you get a charge for failing to appear, you have to deal with more criminality as a result of this. It also has a, a ripple effect on the successful prosecution of crimes. Um, there are, again, we know that women in poverty face higher rates of violence than women who uh, don't live in poverty. And if you have to come to court in a stressful situation where you're compelled to to testify against an abusive uh, partner or against somebody who uh, who assaulted you or robbed you or attacked you or, or whatever you have to come to court to testify you know you're you, you're going to have to again make that choice and we see lots of prosecutions particularly in domestic assault cases where women don't show up to court and there's lots of reasons for that but one of them uh, I, I suspect has to do with access to these resources and not wanting to sit on the stand while you're having your period without being able to actually properly deal with that.
I'll, I'll get you out of here with one final question on, on this subject. So um, you had, you had talked about sort of how much this did cost the BC government to make these products available in public schools. Um, but you, you're, you believe because, I mean, obviously there's a lot more schools than there are courthouses in the province. This wouldn't necessarily be that expensive to implement. So uh, I guess sort of can you compare that same idea to what is happening at public schools and just why you think this is something that would be easier to put in place here in BC uh, even now that they have put it in public schools. So there is a bit of a, a guideline for how to go about doing this, but then also the fact that it isn't going to have those same cost prohibitives either. Either We have very few courthouses in British Columbia. There's uh, about 83 courthouses, and half of them only sit part-time. They're called circuit courts. So they sit anywhere from once a month to once every three months. And so actually supplying those courthouses with menstrual products is not going to take that much of an investment. They're small courthouses. They have one bathroom. You put a, you know, a small amount of, uh, of products in them, and that should be good for a lengthy period of time. Obviously, for larger courthouses like downtown Vancouver, um, Kelowna, Kamloops, um, you're going to see more of a need. But again, you have one courthouse serving an entire array of communities um, where it's not necessarily, necessarily going to take as much resources, whereas you might have one community, you might have 10 or 15 schools that service that community that need to be uh, serviced in each bathroom in the school. So it's a, a much smaller amount of public spaces that have this need and uh, a much uh, less demand on that public space based on the amount of people and how frequently they're open. Well, Kyla, great stuff as always, and uh, always a pleasure to chat with you, and I look forward to doing it again next week. Great. Thank you so much. Awesome. That was Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Coming up after the break, earlier this summer, the TNRD said it would be cracking down on people living in temporary homes like RVs and trailers on a year-round basis. And now there are a number of concerned citizens who are being forced from their homes with nowhere to go. I'll be speaking with a concerned individual after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back and thanks for tuning in today. The TNRD has started to crack down on people living in temporary homes like RVs and trailers. And this has some property owners dealing with imminent evictions and others worry that they could soon find themselves in similar situations. Here now to talk about some of those concerns is Tom Coles. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So you helped to put on a meeting in Clearwater last Wednesday for people to sort of gather and talk about what is going on. So guys, let me just start by asking like kind of how that meeting was attended and sort of what was the mood like for, for those who were in attendance? I mean, could you kind of talk about some of the concerns that were brought up here and, and sort of how you guys are trying to help deal with, with the situation? Yeah, absolutely. The We held a meeting at the local uh, Clearwater Elks Hall, which I, I believe has a capacity of a hundred or 120 people and um, it, it was actually standing room only <clears throat> i was quite impressed it, it's a very emotional issue apparently and it was nice to see the uh, uh show of concern and compassion on behalf of the community that seemed to be uh the uh, overwhelming consensus that people realized uh that something had to be done about these bylaws and um, the, the degree to which these bylaws are, are severely impacting people 
And you had put me in touch last week with, with one woman near Barrier who, you know, was given until today to, to actually leave her property. I guess, how many others have had similar notices at this point? I mean, you don't have to give me specific numbers, but I assume there was a, a few people who kind of expressed concern about being in a similar situation at this meeting. I know we had at least one other citizen reach out to us with an eviction notice last week. Um, you know, are there many more that you're aware of at this time, or do you think more is just maybe likely coming soon at this point? I guess, what, what is your knowledge of sort of what the eviction situation is at this point? Uh, I think it's a situation that's that's growing rapidly due to the economics uh, of the community of the province, in fact, especially with things like mill closures and uh, uh, kind of an economic downturn on the horizon. That the, the sad reality is that there are a lot of people who uh, have absolutely no other choice than perhaps to you know move out of an expensive mortgage or expensive rents into the RVs, and as a result, we're starting to hear more of this. Um, and that group encompasses a, a wide variety of people, uh, from young people working minimum wage do- jobs to uh, increasingly seniors, uh, people on disabilities who have uh, absolutely no other option. And this situation seems to be uh, expanding, and uh, unfortunately our governments have absolutely no solution to this, uh, certainly not a, any compassionate one. Their solution seems to be to try and impose fines of up to $250, uh, send a bylaw enforcement officer clad with a badge and a bulletproof vest to be antagonistic to these people. And we greatly oppose that kind of, uh, of behavior. We, we try to seek some sort of a compassionate uh, solution to this. And I think since we launched our group, um, the membership is climbing rapidly. And as a result, we're reaching out to more people in different areas. And we're starting to hear more stories of this. Uh, most recently, a couple, a uh, senior couple, the uh, wife is 70, the husband's older. He, he's a, a cancer patient uh, living full-time in an RV park in an RV being evicted or threatened with eviction. The couple in Barrier... Uh, that you spoke of, they had been told to vacate land which they own themselves Mm -hmm. uh, as of midnight last night. And as I speak, I'm sitting in the parking lot of the A&W in Clearwater uh, where a convoy of people are gathering uh, en route to stand in solidarity and a show of community support for these people. So, uh, given that, I mean, obviously you guys are rallying together and trying to help each other out, which is always, uh, you know, uh, commendable. I guess, what are the what are the next steps for you guys at this point? Obviously, you know, you're trying to, I don't know if you're trying to reverse necessarily some of these decisions. Are you asking for more time to deal with the situations? Or what is the plan moving forward? I'm sure it is a different case by case, but just sort of on, generally speaking, I guess, what, what are people trying to do to, to make sure they are not getting kicked out of their homes right now? Well, we had a, at the meeting, we were fortunate to have uh, two TNRD reps, uh, our local rep, Carol Schaefer, from the uh, uh, Clearwater region. And as well, uh, we had uh, the rep from uh, 70 Mile House, because uh, this area does this, uh, si- this uh, situation is covering a vast area. They both uh, had agreed to, to take our concerns to the TNRD board. And then we just heard recently that the board is convening on Thursday around uh, 1.15, I believe it is, and that... Uh, um, she will be presenting our concerns to the board at that time. And what we asked for at the meeting and what they agreed to present to the board uh, for the time being was an immediate stop to these evictions and uh, until we can come up with a more compassionate solution. And as well, we would like them to return to the um, complaint-driven basis, whereas uh, now they have been proactive actually seeking out mm-hmm. uh, people violating these bylaws. We'd like to see that stop until we can come to a better solution, and that solution would uh, certainly involve uh, reviewing those bylaws. 
Well, Tom, unfortunately, we are out of time, but uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about these concerns, and it's definitely a, a story that's not going away, so I will be sure to, to follow up with you in the future here. Well, certainly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Awesome. That was Tom Coles talking about uh, concerns about evictions coming throughout the TNRD as people are living in temporary homes, which is no longer, or I guess was never allowed, but now is being enforced at a more, uh, uh, at a bigger basis. <laughs> I'll be back here in about... Uh, what, five or six minutes? We're going to be talking about uh, the spec tax here in BC and how that's impacting housing and rental units in the province. The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Hello and welcome back in here on Monday, September 16th. Thanks so much for joining me. BC's finance minister touted a $115 million windfall from the real estate speculation tax last week, but home builders are singing a bit of a different tune. I know the CHBA of the Central Okanagan says there have been significant job losses in the area, which is one of the areas that's targeted by the tax. Uh, there's also not been a significant change when it comes to the rental market. I'm joined on the phone now by local mortgage specialist Steve Booker. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. So let's just start by talking about the Spectac as a whole here. I mean, the province is saying that it has helped them bring in money, while some home builders are obviously saying it really hasn't helped them when it comes to being able to build new homes. So I guess, what has your experiencing, experience been like with the Spectac? I mean, have, have people's buying habits changed at all as a result of it at this point? I'll have to say yes. In Kamloops here, we've actually had some buyers come from out of town choosing Kamloops because we don't have a speculation tax here. So, uh, as well, we're starting to see rents in the community actually rise. So potentially some of these out-of-town people are buying houses, not occupying them, and then our rents are going up. I mean, what, what have you noticed as far as the impact on the housing supply? I mean, one of the taxes intents was to help increase the number of homes available. But, uh, you know, as I said in my preamble, that doesn't seem to have been the case in places such as Kelowna. Um, it looks like it may have had at least a small impact in Vancouver in terms of bringing the, pricing, uh, the housing prices down. Uh, but what have you seen in terms of having more options available on the market? I mean, do you think that this tax is having any impact? I mean, I don't know about here in Kamloops, but even elsewhere in the province, has, has there been any uptick from your... Uh, from your knowledge, have you seen anything in terms of a growth in the marketplace or has it been pretty stagnant as a result? I'll say that nothing happens in a vacuum. We have the federal government making changes. We've got the provincial government in some jurisdictions making changes. All of those have really eroded the confidence that a builder has that they can sell their house for the dollar that they need to sell it for. So I think a lot of builders have just sidelined themselves and decided not to build in 2018 and possibly in 2019. So I guess what, what kind of changes do you think will come in the future? Do you think that this is maybe, like, like you said, this is uh, you know, potentially just a, 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 a quick look at sort of how things are happening in the last year, year and a half? So moving forward, do you expect some of those changes to be made or some of those building habits, I guess, to be altered as maybe the speculation tax is in place for a little bit longer and maybe people learn a little bit more as how to, how to deal with it and, and sort of the impact it is having on the market? Do you expect things to sort of shift as we move forward and, and as people are understanding of how this works more and more? Um, I think so. I think a lot of people were avoiding the tax by living in BC for longer. I think they just had to live here for 183 days and they could avoid the tax even if they were a foreign buyer. They could buy in a corporation, which of course is a Canadian citizen, which again would avoid the tax. Um, and as well, they could rent out the property for more than three months in 2018. And I think they have to rent it out for six months in uh, 2019. So there are some ways around the tax. 
Um, now, with that, of course, when we're talking about you know having more homes available, and, and the fact that new buy builders or home builders will uh, hopefully, I guess, in the future, you know, start to understand how to work this tax a little bit better, and, and the impact it'll have in terms of making more homes available. Um, but with that, of course, comes housing affordability. More housing options would obviously bring down the price of homes. And from what I understand, like I had mentioned earlier, the impact in Vancouver has been somewhat positive in the market, and they've seen a bit of a downward shift in prices. But I'm not sure it's doing much outside of the big city in that respect. I mean, is that fair? I mean, we've seen prices here in Kamloops continue to rise. Uh, prices in Kelowna seem to be continuing to go up. I guess, what have you seen in terms of the local marketplace and uh, in, in the impact it has had? You even mentioned, you know, with, with the spec tax in place, more people are considering coming here to the interior as a result of not having to pay that tax because it is not in place here in Kamloops. So what have you noticed in terms of the price of housing as a result of this? Um, you know, like I mentioned, it's obviously gone down a little bit in Vancouver but is that the case anywhere else? We have really strong demand for housing in Kamloops and especially for rentals in Kamloops. Uh, we've seen a $350,000 rental house completely disappear from the market. That house is now worth 450000 So we're definitely not seeing any value from the speculation tax. I would guess that the uncertainty is causing builders to build less houses, possibly more multifamily. And so we're not going to hit the mark and improve this situation anytime soon. Uh, I'm here with mortgage specialist Steve Booker now. So with that being said, um, as a result of, of all of that that you're mentioning in terms of the pricing continuing to go up here, I mean, uh, one of the things that I sort of took as a good news story out of all of this was the fact that, uh, you know, places like Kelowna were seeing a downward shift in their employment rates, whereas we here in Kelowna have seen ours go up. Um, and, and so obviously more people are considering being here as a result of the fact that there are more jobs seeming to be available. And then you had obviously mentioned that more people are considering buying here as a result of the, the housing, uh, the tax not being in place here. So I guess how, how should we, uh, as people looking to get into the housing market, would you consider this good or bad, I guess, for here? I mean, obviously, from a, a, a realtor perspective, when the prices go up, you make more money. So from that perspective, it's good news. But from a buyer's perspective, obviously, we want to be spending a little bit less. And it's making it more and more difficult for people to either enter the place or, or move on from a starter home and things along those lines. So I guess, you know, is, is this sort of a, a give and take situation here? Is there a, a good news story to it as well as a bad news story? Is there one particular side that you might fall on there? Well, you know, we run into unintended consequences, and if rents in Kamloops are higher because of the speculation tax, then it's definitely a bad thing. I'd like to see how the government plans to spend the money. I'd like to see how it's going to roll out in our communities, see if the mayor is happy with how he's receiving the money and what he's going to do with that money. So I guess the only upside could potentially be the, the tax windfall. Yeah, um, obviously that's something that uh, the, the, the NDP is very happy to, to talk about, the fact that they are making that money, but uh, doesn't seem to be anywhere else, at least from my uh, experience so far, that anyone else has been overly happy with kind of how this thing has played out to date. Um, I guess you're out of here, I guess, on, on this one here, Steve. Uh, just talking more about the, the rental market as a whole, you had mentioned that the rental prices are continuing to rise here. Uh, I guess how big of a concern is that, I mean, I know you're a mortgage specialist, so obviously you know, you don't really deal necessarily with the rental side of things, but, um, you know, are you seeing a lot of people coming here with the intent of renting things out when people are buying new homes? Are these, are these people moving here just to, to live in these homes? I mean, what are you seeing in terms of um, people looking to have a, another home that they can use as a rental unit? Is there, some, is, there, is there any growth in that market at all as a result of this spec tax? Are people considering buying homes here to rent because they are cheaper or not cheaper, but they don't have to worry about that tax on top of it? Or, or sort of what, what are you seeing in terms of that market 
in terms of the, the rental market. Is there being any, any increase as a result of this? I mean, obviously rents are going up, so I assume availability of rentals is going down. I mean, does that correlate or what, what are you seeing in terms of that market? Um, you know, the people coming to my office are often renters and they're paying $2,500 a month for rent. They have kids, they have dogs, and they can't find another rental place. And sometimes the place they're living in is up for sale. And now they have a lot of nervousness about where they're going to go. Um, for those people, they may have owned a home before and they're not a first-time home buyer anymore. So it leads to a lot of anxiety and worry about having to move. And I would love to see a government program to help these folks people who uh, have multiple kids, possibly have owned before, and uh, they're not, quote, a first-time home buyer who works maybe in the oil patch, makes $110,000 a year, and has a nice big down payment with no kids and no family. These are real families with, uh, with a life that they're trying to live in the community, and they just can't afford to get ahead. Yeah, um, definitely concerning for, for many individuals out there. I mean, a, a lot of people looking for places to rent. I know I myself, when I first moved here earlier this summer, uh, wasn't the easiest uh, in terms of finding somewhere to live. Uh, fortunately, I was able to do it fairly quickly, but then uh, not everyone's going to be able to have that same uh, experience as I did. So hopefully we can see some more people coming and, and, and having affordable rents, I guess. What, what is it going to take? Just uh, one more question here for you, Steve. What's it going to take for those rents to come down? Is it just a matter of more homes being available and more rental units being available? Is that really all it comes down to? It's a supply and demand. We have more people that need housing than the housing that's available. And if, if builders do not feel confident they can sell their house for the dollar they need, then they're just not going to build. And uh, we could see that uh, house being built in three or four years, but certainly not today. Well, Steve, thank you so much for uh, coming on the program today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I think there's some uh, valuable information there, and uh, I'm actually going to be continuing this conversation here in a little bit. So thanks so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Have a good day. Awesome, you too. That was Steve Booker, local mortgage specialist, talking about the speculation tax. And coming up next, like I said, I will be continuing on with this topic. I will have liberal housing critic Sam Sullivan on after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. We're back here on Radio NL on Monday, September 16th. And thanks so much for tuning in. I'm joined now by BC Liberal Housing Critic Sam Sullivan. Sam, thanks so much for coming on the program today. Thanks for having me. So, Sam, the, the NDP was touting the speculation tax last week, saying it had brought in $115 million. But then there's also, of course, many outside organizations who aren't seeing it necessarily as a win the same way that the province is. So what is your opinion on the spec tax as it stands now? I mean, do you think it is having the desired effect that the, the government was hoping it would when they implemented it? No, actually, I don't. Um, it has really created a lot of uncertainty in the industry. And what we've seen is that there are now less housing units being built now than there was uh, before it was introduced. And this is one of the problems when you start to um, purposely try to depress uh, the housing market and, you know, the, you're, you, they're wanting the values of the homes to go down. And, uh, you know, I understand the, uh, the rationale, but when you start to use taxes to do that, uh, what what we really need is we need more homes to be built, and what these taxes are doing are actually creating uncertainty, uh, creating disincentives, and people, uh, the developers, are are basically leaving town, and many of them are are developing in other parts of uh, North America. 
Now, the speculation tax is obviously a, a pretty new, uh, a new thing here in BC. So, I mean, do you think that things will change as this tax is in place for a bit longer? Do you foresee the fact that, you know, you mentioned obviously new homes are not being built, at least not at the pace that we would hope. Uh, so do you think that that could potentially change as people become more familiar with how the process works? Or do you think that this is just sort of what we're going to be seeing moving forward as long as the spec tax is in place? Well, you know, it's had a, a lot of effects, and we we do know that uh, people have uh, left. You know, there are people, for example, um, you know, some pretty high-profile examples of people who are investors in the province who have uh, homes here, and uh, they've decided to just take their money and, and leave, you know. And, you know, this is one of the things that you've got to worry about with an economy. You know, there's a lot. We're a global economy. We... We have a lot of um, exports that we do. I mean, British Columbia is basically um, founded on trade. And once you start, um, you know, alienating the people that you're actually uh, doing business with, uh, there's there's a lot of um, serious consequences to that. But, I, you know, we've tried to um, advocate for changes. You know, like a lot of the speculation tax going on against Canadians. You know, we've got a lot of people in Alberta that uh, love love it in British Columbia. We have many British Columbians who have to work outside of the country for some time, and uh, they, you know, they're, they're actually committed to British Columbia, and now they're being called speculators. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, really a very, very blunt instrument that is hurting a lot of people. Do you have uh, any particular concern when it comes to where this tax has been implemented? I mean, uh, like, I know in Vancouver, right, that was one of the major concerns was that the price of homes in Vancouver has just continued to skyrocket. And it seems like it has, at least over the course of these first few months here, um, you know, it has had at least a somewhat of an impact on the housing prices within the city of Vancouver. But when you look outside, you're talking about Abbotsford and Mission and Chilliwack, Kelowna, West Kelowna, Nanaimo. I mean, there's a number of places that maybe this isn't necessarily... Like, I don't know if it's necessarily the right place to be implementing such a tax. Um, I mean, do you, do you think that even if it has had somewhat of an impact on Vancouver, that maybe it's not having the desired impact outside of it? Uh, I mean, do you have any issue in terms of just where this spec tax has been implemented and just the cities that are potentially, I guess, losing out as a result of it? Well, when I talk to people in the real estate industry, they say it's the stress test uh, that has been implemented federally that has had the biggest impact on, on depressing prices. But, you know, we have um, a, a lot of people that are, are, are you know, confused about the, the tax. And they, uh, you know, as I said, it's, it's causing people who are supposed to be building houses uh, to actually stop. And, um, you know, what, we're, what we want to see is building more houses. The way you deal with uh, the price of housing is not by trying to suppress demand artificially you've got to raise the supply you've got to build more housing and what we've seen with these taxes it's actually doing the opposite so uh, you know it's not a, a good future that we're looking forward to here uh, when the government is actually causing house housing starts to decline 
Uh, I'm here with liberal housing critic Sam Sullivan, housing critic, of course, here in B.C. So let me ask then, if the liberals were in power here in B.C. today, I guess, how do you think you would go about trying to address the issue of housing costs and, and uh, not, home availability? I guess, what, what steps would you guys be taking and, and how would that differ from what the speculation tax is currently doing? Well, I just want to deal with one other point that you had brought up, which is this uh, patchwork of different uh, jurisdictions where you go to one community and they've got the tax and the other community doesn't have the tax. Um, and then you've got, you know, I mean, Whistler is, is a place where, uh, you know, large parts of Whistler are, are owned by people from out of town, and yet that's not part of the tax, you know. So uh, it's very confusing that way. But... Um, uh, I don't believe you should have province split up into this patchwork of different types of taxes. It's very confusing for uh, for, for home buyers, and uh, it, it it creates disincentives within certain areas. Now, um, you know, a lot of the uh, so-called speculators, the the foreign people who actually own places in Vancouver, when you look at the Vancouver uh, empty home tax, it's actually condos. You know, these people who, many of them have investments here, and many have, have very good legitimate reasons to uh, have a stake in Vancouver and British Columbia, they're, they're, they're buying condos. You know, th this is uh, uh, something that we can make lots more of easily. Uh, unfortunately, the problem is that the city processes have thousands of housing units sitting in waiting in line to get uh, to reviewed and all the regulations that go on are involved with that. And so we could easily build, the, the private sector could easily build lots more housing, but the city processes are purposely actually uh, meant to slow down the rate of, of uh, housing starts. So the first thing we got to do is we got to get cities to stop uh, putting obstacles in the way of, of, of the creation of more housing. And then I'll, I'll just re-ask the question then again, because you, you touched on it maybe a little bit, but uh, just in terms of what the Liberals would do, if you you know were, were the Minister of Housing today, I guess what steps would you be taking to try to increase that housing market here in BC and also reduce uh, the price of homes as well? I mean, is, is there a, a perfect method that you have come up with, if you will, to, to try to address both those issues in, in one swing? We've got to get out of the way of the private sector. The private sector is desperate to build more housing. We have so many people that want to build housing. What uh, they are worried about is the incredible regulations, the, 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 lot, the waiting time you have to go. You know, we've had buildings taking years just to get approved. Uh, you've got to get municipal governments out of the way. And uh, that's, that's the main thing they need. They, they need uh, zoning changes. Uh, right now, we have 80%, 70 to 80% of the city of Vancouver uh, is under single-family zoning. And, uh, you know, this is now, uh, they say about 8% of the city can actually afford to live there now. So, you know, younger people who are trying to get homes in the city now are being uh, pushed out because, uh, you know, we have some very ancient zoning regulations uh, that were put in in the 1920s and they basically haven't changed since. We have uh, areas, large areas of the city that have less people living in it today than they did in the 1970s. Imagine in the middle of a housing crisis, we have less people living in large areas of the city than we did in the 70s. So that's the kind of challenge we're up against. 
Well, Sam, unfortunately, we're uh, pretty much out of time here, but uh, thank you so much for uh, giving me a call this morning and, and coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and uh, some interesting stuff there for sure. So I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for your interest. Bye. All right. That was Sam Sullivan, BC's Liberal housing critic. And just a heads up that uh, tomorrow I'm set to be continuing this conversation with the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Selena Robinson. So tune in Tuesday to listen to that conversation. Well, that pretty much wraps things up for me here today. So of course, I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me on the program. And uh, of course, more importantly, I want to thank all of you for tuning in to listen. Uh, always appreciate your ears and uh, definitely want to uh, continue to do this. And, and I'll be back here tomorrow, uh, nine o'clock to do it again. So remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know that I enjoyed our time while it lasted. And once again, of course, I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.